HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here actually celebrating the 100th episode. Made it. Survived. Uh, with the lovely illustrator, Peter Arkel, who Hi. just uh, flew back from Scotland. Yes, just a couple of days ago, so a little bit jet-lagged. Excellent. And, and brought me a cookie. Yes. So. It pays to turn up on radio shows <laughs> with a cookie. Excellent. And we'll eat that cookie a little bit later. But first, I wanted to say thank you for coming. I've, I, I've admired your work uh, for thank quite you. some time, seeing it in food and wine. Uh, I actually saw it in the soup kitchen on the Upper East Side. Uh, I love that you saw those. Yeah. Because um, there's not, not even many of my close friends have even seen those. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not a place you can just kind of go on tour visits all the time. Yeah. And it's not that near either. But, yeah. But um, I loved that job. I mean, it was just, you know, they really gave me free reign just to draw... Um, food basically yeah what was that soup kitchen Hmm? what what's the name of that soup kitchen it is called um oh my goodness the um yorkville common pantry yeah that's the one i was just i was struggling with the initials and what they meant (laughs) because i always just call it ycp but that's fine we we acronym a lot on this show when we forget yeah no it's um yeah i mean it's it's an amazing place i mean they um they were they had a whole renovation paid for by the robin hood um, foundation yeah you know they've been building libraries and things in schools and all kind of amazing things for for new yorkers um and i i was approached by them you know via pentagram yeah um, oh that's um michael they did the hard yeah. work they had they had to do all the print printing of my drawings and all the framing <laughs> which was a big job yeah it was about you know hundreds of frames oh basically. yeah there were a ton of photos there but yeah. it, it made what is usually such a drab and kind of sterile uh, situation um lively and it, and it they, showed it reflected in the people that were actually yeah i mean they wanted me to make it um friendly and sort of a welcoming space yeah so um I 
basically based it on the walls in my apartment. I mean, it was just trying to let, because they have lots of little different size frames with different things in. Yeah. And I just thought, what would be, be kind of nice to do that? It'll make it look sort of friendly. Yeah. Um, you know, and the architects obviously worked hard on that too. Then I, I'm in that lucky position as the illustrator. I get to come along after all their hard work and all their <laughs> planning nightmares and flooding problems and other things they had to go through. I come along and stick some drawings on it and get all the attention. I'm <laughs> sure it's a little more work than that. Um, yeah, but you know, my job's often the easier. Yeah. The cherry on the top, you know. <laughs> Wonderful food pun for that. Um, but your life starting in Scotland, uh, was it always visual? Was it always food? Um, yeah, it was always food. At the, at the beginning, it was very basic. I mean, my mother, my mother, if she was here, would have to say that the only things I ate when I, ki- when I was a kid were um, rice pudding and um, what else? Oh, and fruit salad. So, when, you know, whenever we went out, no matter how nice the restaurant, I would only want fruit salad or rice pudding. And I mean canned rice pudding. You know, oh, yeah. This stuff called ambrosia, ambrosia creamed rice, yeah. which all British people will know. Which um, I can still get a craving for if I'm really, you know, feeling ill or anything. <laughs> well, it's a textural thing sometimes. It's just, you know, and it's like really sweet and creamy and probably yeah. tastes of the can a little bit. It's <laughs> I, mm, delicious. Do you, do you sometimes <laughs> cream and can your foods just to harken back to those days? Um, no, no. <laughs> I'm just way not, um, not that much of a culinary expert. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in Scotland, uh, where exactly did you grow up? I grew up in a place called Pennycook, which is uh, mainly, anyway, um, most of my life, um, which is 10 miles south of Edinburgh. Yeah. And then um, when I was, um, I guess I was 19, I, I moved to London to go to art school. I went to St. Martin's in the Royal College. And, um, and then in December 95, my girlfriend at that time got a job with Amnesty International and moved to New York, and I followed her. Yeah. And um, we broke up. I stayed. She's actually back now. We're still friends. Um, she's actually French, in fact, from, from yeah. Paris. I just wanted to say that because she hates Paris. And I, I like to <laughs> make her be French and yeah. from Paris. So if she's listening. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I've lived in New York now since um, December 95. Yeah. I love it here and did right from the beginning. Yeah. So w- when you moved here, you know, uh, we'll talk about your education and schooling in a bit. But what kind of regional cuisine did you leave behind? And was it easy to find here or was it easy to also let go of that? Well, you know, I left behind um, London food, but I, it's, it's not really, it's beyond fair for me to try and sort of judge London food at that time because, you know, I was a I was um, either a starving student or a starving beginning illustrator when yeah. I lived in London. <laughs> so I had very little money for eating out. It was kind of a big deal if I did that. You know, we'd maybe go out and have Indian food. Yeah. And there's amazing Indian food in London. I, you know, <laughs> anywhere. Actually, anywhere yeah. in Britain. I mean, you can, to be honest, you could be on the tiniest island in the remotest part of Scotland and there's an amazing Indian restaurant there. It might not look amazing, but trust me, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's the perfect um, antidote to that awful, wet, damp, cold weather too. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, when I, I will say when I moved to New York, I kind of doubled in size immediately because <laughs> A, I had, I had a bit more money um, and then B, just food is bigger here. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's totally true. Like I was completely skinny when I, when I left yeah. London, you know, and um, just, you know, grew. Yeah. Are you still here. shocked by the size of food here? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, I've sort of, you know, most of the time, most of the places I eat regularly, I've figured out. So I know when you've got to share when you know how to order so that it doesn't go wrong. Cause I actually, I hate wasting food and I hate that, you know, that thing when you have all of these dishes coming and you know, you just can't eat them. Yeah. Just that depresses the hell out of me. Yeah. But, um, 
you know, I, I can still, if I go and eat somewhere I haven't eaten before, I can sometimes get caught out. And um, actually, um, my wife and I were just in Stockholm and portions there are crazy. <laughs> I, you know, like They're almost everything is just giant. Yeah. And like I, we never once made it to dessert. It's just impossible. Like everything is just huge and rich. Yeah. And um, my, the thing that puts it perfectly into perspective is when, when we got back to Scotland after being in Sweden, we were really hungry, so we went to the local fish and chip shop and had and had like classic Scottish fish and chips, which is obviously not a light and healthy dish. <laughs> but after eating that, which we wolfed down, we felt way less stuffed than we did after any of those like expensive Swedish meals. It yeah. was crazy. Like so, there's something I don't know what it is. Whether it's, it's like the, a reverse diet, they love salt or whatever it yeah. is. It's something that makes it just so rich. Some yeah. really tasty food. I mean, and I love all of the things, the fish and everything they have there is fantastic. Yeah. It can get a bit giant. It's so funny because looking at your work, uh, you talk about large portion sizes. Um, Some of that oddly reflects in how you draw single subjects, these kind of uh, larger than life uh, things from, well, potatoes, Mm -hmm. uh, which I absolutely love. uh, All the iterations of potatoes that you've drawn over the years. Right. Uh, How many have you actually drawn and why were they lazy Sunday potatoes? Um, Well, I guess so much of my work involves endless detailed line drawing um you know and i love to cram as much information as possible into every drawing you know so often that a lot of art directors job is there a lot of the time their job is to tell me you know just you can cut that down a bit yeah. or simplify things <laughs> so um after basically i i got i wanted to get back into doing some painting and um um i think actually the first potato painting i did was a was a mother's day gift for my uh, my mother-in-law and um, I just was thinking, what will I paint? And I had this like little canvas ready, and I was like, what will I paint? And I think my wife said, um, why don't you just paint a potato? You're always you love eating potatoes. You're always going on about potatoes. So, <laughs> and it's you know, potatoes are pretty easy to paint. You know, you need some yellow ochre paint, and then um, you can kind of slap it on. It's a little bit abstract. A lot, of, you know, that's the thing I like drawing about. A lot of a lot of drawing food involves doing slightly sort of abstract things. It's like blobs of color. And, yeah. You know, you get away from line quite quickly. I mean, there's only really one, one or two lines in a potato. There's the outside of the potato, <laughs> and then there's a few eyes here and there and a couple of dots, and the rest is all just like blobs of mushy color. Yeah. And then, um, then I just had this simple idea to stick it on a bright blue background, and it just looked so good um, that after doing that one for my mother-in-law, I then decided to do just start doing them every Sunday. I would just paint another potato. I would go out and buy one potato from the deli and take it home and, and then immortalize it. <laughs> and um, I guess in the end, I haven't done one for a, a while now. Um, probably done about 50 of them in total. I had an exhibition, um, wow, probably eight years ago or something. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sold a bunch of them then. I still, I, I kept, um, there's a grid of them in, in our living room, which is about, I think it's about 30 potatoes. Yeah. Something like, I can't even remember. You know, it's like five. Maybe it's as many as 35 or something. I forget. What What did but, you make out of those potatoes? Or were they just relics? These were the just, paintings? these were just um, purely painting. They were, you know, more than anything, they were to decorate my home. If I, if I paint just for the sake of it, that's its main purpose. Occasionally I'll sell something like that. But yeah. um, they're really, as much as anything, it's because when I go and look at other people's work that I could buy, I'll, I will often cheekily sort of think, wow, I could do that myself. Why don't I do something like that for myself? So I'll sometimes do that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's just a, it's a nice, why not have nice colorful pictures on the well, wall? What does your apartment <laughs> look like? Uh, is, is it completely clad with uh, paintings, drawings, it's illustrations? A, um, slightly less than it used to be because we had it, we finally got around to having it painted by the landlord. And um, so we had to take everything down and it's taking us a bit longer just to put things up. So it's, it looks a bit more minimal than it used to. Because basically, as the walls got dirtier and dirtier, we just we just put up more and more pictures. So yeah. it used to just be completely <laughs> thick with art, you know, yeah. just to hide all the weird stains and smudges on the white walls. And it's a weird apartment because it's quite small and it's it's actually spread over four levels. But each level is only really like a sort of landing in a staircase. <laughs> so you spend a lot, you know, if you're going up and down all those stairs, you brush against these lovely yeah. white walls all the time. So Vertical there's all living. these big smudges. Yeah. And it starts to look like some sort of serial killer's den, you know, with all these big like black handprints on the wall. <laughs> and, you know, and also we used to both work from there as well. Um, but now we, we rented the apartment next door. So we have our own separate workspace. Yeah. So coming to New York in 95, you were a starving illustrator. Um, I was kind of a kept man illustrator. Yeah. I, was, I was personally starving, but my girlfriend was very nice and fed me. Excellent. So, <laughs> so I can't quite claim the starving. So in that transition, though, how did you start garnering work? How did you start finding clients and drawing what you wanted? Because it seems uh, like you've done work that you really not only care about, but um, yeah. you know that you have this point of view that has been uncompromising and unfledgling well i think i actually always the drawing what i wanted to do was the easy part because that's what i had to do to keep myself sane while i was waiting for employment you know (laughs) so well you know obviously i had part-time jobs i worked in a coffee store in in brooklyn i worked in london i used to work in in leaf and bean i believe it just shut down which is um yeah it's an old um, park slope institution um run by really nice people and um i haven't spoken to them for a long time but i'm very sad that it's shut down now but um yeah and they used to just sell hundreds of different types of coffee beans and lots of tea and coffee making utensils it was kind of a fun fun um first kind of part-time job in the city yeah um taught me to be american a little bit (laughs) (laughs) well you also did a study of coffee beans while you were there or yeah yeah no i mean um i've always had a thing about coffee it's uh you know who doesn't yeah <laughs> that just seems to be everyone's thing now you know coffee's just everywhere um i love how you know new coffee trends just spread so rapidly i love this new um flat white phenomenon where i don't know that which came you know flat white is just basically a latte with less milk and <laughs> so it's just it actually tastes more of coffee because you know latte just tastes like a cup of hot milk and yeah you kind of want a nap afterwards yeah <laughs> so i think flat whites come from australia originally it's part of that melbourne coffee culture interesting and i've noticed in the last Really, the last few months, those are spreading everywhere. Yeah. Well, I'm holding in my hands to uh, a project that you did, what, uh, in in London in the Royal Academy of Arts? Uh, Royal College of Arts, Royal College of Arts, uh, all about coffee. Actually, that that even actually goes before that. That was back in St. Martin. Sorry, I am being confused. But yeah, um, basically, whenever I would be traveling or bored, you know, and I stop and have a cup of coffee, I would find myself making little drawings of, of the cup of coffee in my sketchbook. And, um, you know, my teachers at school were always saying, well, you know, you've got all these fun little drawings and doodles in your sketchbooks. You need to take some of them out and do something with them. And so the very first idea I had of doing that was to just go through the notebooks and collect all of the drawings of coffee cups together and put them into one little limited edition photocopied at that time and stapled little book. And so that just became called Coffee. 
Um, and it's just literally a collection of um, 60-odd um, drawings of cups of coffee. You know, they're not just drawings. There's little notes next to the, the drawings with um, saying something about what I was thinking or who I was with or where I was when I was doing it. Um, sometimes there's just a comment about the cup of coffee. Like um, vomit, puke yes, coffee. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and that became a good way for me to make a lot of my personal work. I would, you know, just, you know, I'm always doodling in my little notebooks um, and I'd just now and again go through and just find some subject or some things that work well together. Um, obviously, there were a lot of um, observations of weird things I would see on the underground in London or the subway in New York. Yeah. Or just people in the street or whatever. And I, um, you know, I started collecting those together and editing them. And that became this thing called Peter Arkell News, which is my own little newspaper. Also, I, be- I, mean, I began publishing that back at the Royal College. Yeah. First issue came out in 1993. Um, originally it was just photocopied it's now actually printed on newsprint um, and so I, you know now it actually looks the way it was always meant to because it was kind of meant to be a tabloid newspaper about everyday life yeah. with sort of tabloid style headlines but um, you know instead of being about celebrity scandals they'd just be about um, a weird shape at the bottom of my coffee cup or whatever weird little thing I come across. Yeah, or your your travels in Moscow. Uh, yeah, well, that that's a um, that's the most recent issue, and that's a crazy one. I mean, I, I was approached by Snob Magazine, which is published in Moscow. They, um, they just literally gave me this complete dream commission. They said, we'll, you know, we'll pay you to come over to Moscow, <laughs> and all you've got to do is hang out and make a newspaper about it. So you can do whatever you want. You know, you can you know, just be a tourist, basically. And I said, are there specific things you need? And they said, no, just, you know, have fun. And we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, there are some English speaking guys at the magazine, they'll take you out and you can do, have some adventures with them. Because obviously I don't speak any Russian. Yeah. So that helped a lot. So, um, and the original idea was that they were going to publish that in an issue of their magazine. <laughs> um, and they ended up just never getting around to it. I yeah. think that they, they were a bit daunted by, the amount of handwriting they were going to have to turn into Russian handwriting. Oh, yeah, Which they were actually going yeah. to pay me to do as well. You know, I think they'd, they'd translate it all, and then I would carefully handwrite all the Cyrillic characters, which was kind of daunting to me as well. Yeah. Um, so they ended up not publishing it, but they paid me in full and paid for my whole trip. And um, so I have this lo- lovely issue which where I just got sent to Moscow randomly. You know, and basically there's a, lo- a lot of the stories are, you know, there's, there's literally me sitting in a really nice restaurant in Moscow um, having a strange dessert. I think there's there was this one place called um, Coffee Mania, which had these crazy desserts. Yeah. Um, they had names like the Fifth Element, and I think the Fifth Element was um, this kind of cake, like a chocolate, a ball of chocolate with. Um, I think it had like gorgonzola and chocolate inside <laughs> it, and it was actually delicious. And you know, I would just look at this display cabinet of these cakes and. My original aim was that I would just go there every night and the whole newspaper would just be, each day of the newspaper would be the name of one of those desserts. Yeah. But I ended up getting distracted and doing some other things. Yeah. Um, including going to the steam bath with one of the editors of the magazine. <laughs> and we were naked and like hitting each other with branches, which I've never done with a client Yeah, before. I don't know if I see that in this, in this magazine. <laughs> there's no drawing, but no. There's, there's a description of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also seems uh, that you figure out you have a weak bladder or um, it's a lot of drinking and peeing, yeah, well, it seems. Yeah, well, November in Moscow is very damp and cold. And um, yeah, uh, you, I did spend a lot of time like rushing, rushing around trying to find a bathroom. Yeah. That's just my problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what's awesome about this being not only a travel log is... Uh, 
how almost uh, myopic you get how how and i don't mean sing, single subject but that you narrow it down on a very specific point of view and uh, you know fastidiously and uh, obsessively draw about that thing um, right how do you approach subjects um i think i mainly pa- i start by sort of panicking if you know if someone <laughs> gives me a subject to think about you know, my first thing is, oh, my God, I need to learn everything possible. And I try and cram everything in. And that, you know, so I'll just start with the first thing in front of me. Then I'll try and develop on that and I'll learn more and more and more. And, um, you know, I just it's basically like a crazy collecting process. I just try and jam in as much information as I can. And then I sort of sit down and whether it's like drawings or notes or photos, whatever I have. And then it's a matter of sort of editing from that, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, the first the first um the first thing I do is often something really, really complicated. And and that comes from a kind of um, an urge to satisfy the client, to show them, especially if they're paying for my time. It depends how, how the fee is and all of that. If if they're paying me by the hour or something, then I want to show them that I can really deliver for the money they're paying. <laughs> yeah. So I try and baffle them with something really complicated. And then once I've got that down, that'll sort of give me the confidence to actually do some more fun, often more simple ideas, you know, which are actually the things that people often end up going with. You know, so sometimes I wonder if I could make my life a lot easier by just, <laughs> just doing the simple thinking quietly. Like, you know, maybe I should just go somewhere and sit and have a quiet cup of coffee and then just do one simple drawing. And I'd probably get away with it in yeah. a lot of cases, but I'm just not that kind of person. I have to sort of like go all psycho and yeah. eventually I'll get to a very Exhaust everything thing. and then find yeah. what's right. So, you know, a lot of things I work on, I'll have all these piles of like ideas and things. And then at the end, there's one little drawing, yeah. you know, which took two minutes. Yeah. But I couldn't, have, I probably couldn't have got there without having to go through all that stuff first. Yeah, exactly. You know? And the notebook is, com- you know, that the kind of writing in the notebook is a bit of therapy in a way when I'm sort of <laughs> freaking out, you know, I can sit down and calmly, because I feel like if I, if I can just sit still and go, I am drinking an un- a glass of wine. The glass of the glass is an unusual kind of shape, and the person at the table behind me is saying this weird thing. Then it's already there's this little focus thing happens, and of course, like it would be really boring. I think if all I did was go inward into that kind of level, but then gr- getting a grasp of of stuff and information like that at that level sometimes then allows me to to come across something much more amazing. Yeah, you know, because once you focus down like that, that's when you realize. And you start to spot like weird little coincidences, yeah. things that um, you may not have noticed otherwise. Yeah, that's where you, know? you kind of set your foci. Yeah, I mean, I was actually early to get here and I was sitting outside on a, on a coffee shop along the street on a little wooden bench in the sun. And um, I'd just written the word, something about Swedish people in my notebook. I was just remembering something about the trip to, recent trip to Sweden. And literally two Swedish people walked by. <laughs> and it was just like, really? <laughs> Do you feel like Which sometimes not amazing, you control the fun... world with your mind? I wish. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break and come back sure. uh, and talk about uh, this cookie, which I'm about to eat, and a little bit about scotch. Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back.
Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef. Available on the internet at hearstranch.com. We started eating this cookie while we were coming back. <laughs> Welcome back to the food scene. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Peter Arkel. Where did you get this cookie? That cookie came from Bubuki, which is the most amazing Greek bakery in Essex Street Market. I'm going to have to second that right Run now. by a, a lovely lady called um, Rona. And if I got her name wrong, I'm dead, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's her name. But at least this episode will live on forever. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is delicious cookie. Yeah, those, she makes amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, where else do you go about and eat in New York? Do you go to those places for sustenance or for subject matter? Um, I actually get really, really hungry, so um, there's no... <laughs> My all creative skills shut down as soon as I get a bit hungry. So I I um, purely go to eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In fact, um, you know, I literally just kind of lose it. You know, I have to eat, and then I then I feel a lot better. Yeah. Um, so you know, there's a, obviously being that hungry and desperate. Um, a lot of my eating happens very locally. Um, you know, we live on Avenue C in the East Village, and we'll stagger around the corner and go to um supper quite a lot yeah um that's of the little frankie's empire exactly yeah Yeah. um that place is just great they they have a you know a lot of that has to do with it being the place we go to a ton of times so they know us in there now and they they make us feel very welcome um and but i just love their simple food i love how much amazing food they can they can make from that tiny little kitchen and how quickly and we tend to go off times it does that place gets a bit too insane and busy at night and stuff during the you know later parts of the week go there on a sunday night monday night earlier in the week go there for brunch at the weekend great yeah um i'm big big fans of um the brooklyn brooklyn taqueria which is also an essex market that's been amazing yeah i had lunch there today in fact um (laughs) And it's kind of like this light, tasty, delicious thing. I come out yeah. of there just feeling totally happy. <laughs> so do you ever crave Scottish cuisine? Do you ever look for it in the city? Um, not occasionally I'll get... The cravings that I get are for things that are sort of more mass-produced, like um, particular types of cookie and things. Um, yeah. And if I want the sort of more... What I think of as Scottish cuisine is quite simple and it's more like the sort of home cooking I grew up with. So I tend to just make something myself and it will inevitably involve potatoes. <laughs> um, if you go out in Scotland, you a lot of it's this sort of pub food and you end up getting a lot of like really starchy, crazy, heavy food. Um, they do love to serve dishes which include mashed potatoes and French fries, <laughs> which can be a bit much. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's funny, I, I think actually... Um, there's amazing produce in Scotland, but um, a lot of restaurants there mess it up by trying to be too complicated. And if they just grill it or do it really simply, it would be amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be, I don't know, I think I think there are some, there's some. There's a thing called Cullen Skink, which is a, I think it's a, it's a smoked haddock soup, 
And that is a delicious thing, which um, I believe, I think you can get that at Highlands here sometimes, oh, or yeah. at Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. Um, I, th- I don't think I've ever had it there, but I, I believe it shows up yeah. on their menu. I thought uh, it was just interesting what you said about Scottish cuisine, um, if they just kept it simple. It's almost like what you were just talking about prior to showing your client this very complex piece of work, and really it could be as simple as a, a painting of a potato that impresses them the most. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's sometimes you don't understand the inherent uh, ability of the product no, or the and skill. I, yeah, and I, I think the reason for that complexity is is a very similar thing. It's the same sort of money based reason, you know, because basically the restaurants and you know it, it costs more to eat out in the UK. It's, yeah, you know, it's definitely you know just like it's literally cheaper to eat out here, and so it's something that people do as a more common kind of thing. And when you eat out in the UK, it's just more of a big deal, you know. I don't know by what amount, but it's definitely more of a big deal. So I think that the chefs feel they have to like do this fancy thing. Yeah. And then it just kind of goes all wrong. Yeah. Because they're pretending to be French or there's this weird cream sauce or you just, you know, and you're like, just can you just give me that delicious piece of locally caught salmon <laughs> yeah. with those amazing like Scottish raspberries? Even now there are raspberries and, and strawberries which are grown in Scotland in the rain, in the dark, which for some reason taste completely amazing. I don't know what it is, what they do to them. But they've got, oh, they've they've just bred special fruit that can that likes those rainy conditions. Yeah. <laughs> but oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's get off the hunger because I want yes. you to be able to focus on the rest yes. of the interview. <laughs> um, tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were a pen and paper guy, I'm assuming, for years. Uh, how has it changed going from analog to digital? Um, it's kind of a slow process. I mean, I didn't. It wasn't never a big jump. I mean, I, I, um, I still all my work still starts in the same way. I have a basically a Rotring art pen. It's a, just a basic black ink fountain pen with a fine nib, which I use for just about everything. Um, Sometimes you know it tends to be on just the cheapest piece of photocopy paper. I buy packs of that. Um, I draw something, and then if it's um, not quite right, I will trace it on my light box and make it right. And then when it's, you know, at a level where I'm kind of done with the twiddling about with the actual pen, I'll scan it into Photoshop and um, make some corrections and um, add color maybe. Or maybe if it's a a crowd scene involving like 50 people or something, I might have drawn 50 individual people and I'll, you know, carefully cut them out and layer them all. And a lot of this is just because I know the kind of edits I'm going to face from magazine art directors. They're going to say, oh, that person over there, can you remove them or whatever? And it's just so easy. Just with one click, they're gone. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously when it's all flattened and everything, it looks like a very nice complicated drawing. So, are you more obsessive now than you were? Um, I think so, just because (laughs) of the level of detail that you can get. You know, and zooming in on Photoshop um, can be kind of crazy. You know, I I will end up drawing like a a little pattern on like a coffee cup, which is in the background of a drawing, you know. And then I I realize when I zoom back out that it's so tiny that by the time it's reproduced in a magazine, you know, maybe even at fairly low quality whatever print quality it'll it's going to just not even be visible yeah or the same thing i'll be coloring something and i'm carefully i realize i'm actually coloring individual pixels <laughs> and just like what am i doing this is not needed you know? yeah well then zooming out in your newsletter which i have in hand um is printed like you said on newsprint uh, yeah. how do people tactilely get that uh, sometimes it's sold at printed matter here yeah i mean they they might still have some there um you know it it basically the main the, the main amount of them are just are, I send out in a with a in a mailing list. Um, I have a list of subscribers which is continually growing, probably about five hundred or something. Now. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and they're all over the world. I mean, I have you know literally I have people. I have a lot in Moscow since doing that Moscow issue. I have <laughs> uh, 
subscribers in Australia, you name it, kind of everywhere. Yeah. Um, I did even have one at one point who was in Antarctica at the McMurdo Sound Research Station. Oh, that's awesome. I think she's not there anymore. Yeah. Because um, the last issue I sent got returned. So, <laughs> but um, it was fun to have her for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the main way you get it is you drop me an email and say you'd like it. Yeah. And then you give me your mailing address and I send it to you. You know, I, I basically, it comes out so um, infrequently. Um, it's about a year since the last issue. There's usually at least that much time between issues. Um, I just can't, it's not a commercial thing. I, I used to charge people a subscription fee, but it just got ridiculous. So yeah. now, now I just write it all off. It's a, it's a promotional thing. Yeah. It's fun. It's something I do. It does get me more work, so it genuinely does have a promotional purpose. But um, it's just a fun you know, something to entertain people with. Yeah. Really. Did, did this help you get the Anok job? Anok is a, um, the Scotch whiskey. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it was part of why I got that job. Um, they originally discovered some of the work I'd done for Bumble and Bumble. Oh, yeah. Um, I believe that they were literally just Googling Scottish artist New York. <laughs> and that popped up and they were like, he seems Scottish and seems like an artist we like. So they emailed <laughs> me and... Um, and I, you know, I actually literally just said to some students a couple of days, well, a couple of months actually before, that my dream job would be to do to do drawings on a whiskey bottle. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't believe this email saying, you know, we've, we're representing this single malt. We would like some drawings, and you know, so obviously I had to pretend to be all blasé and reply, you know, say, yeah, I think I can possibly fit that in. You know, yeah. while I was of course going, <laughs> yes, yeah, awesome job. You know. so, so, um, are you a big Scotch drinker? On top of that, um, yeah, um, I. Um, yeah, over the probably over the last like ten years, I've become more and more of a of a Scotch drinker for yeah. sure. Um, it is something I enjoy a lot, um, and there's just such a lot of great whiskies out there, a lot of different variety. Um, I guess in the summer in New York, it gets so sweaty. I tend to move over to being more of a bourbon drinker. Yeah, on the rocks, perhaps. But um, we won't you know, tell Anna whiskey. That, yeah. Just yeah, they know that. Yeah. But whiskey, <laughs> you know, whiskey is just so perfect for the the Scottish climate. And and the the bit of the New York year that seems like Scottish climate colder even yeah but less damp but <laughs> um, there's a video associated well first how do you spell Anok so everyone knows A N C N O C I think N O C and I bet I got that wrong yeah just Google it just Google, but go to Peter Arkle you can find it uh, there but um, there's a video associated with um, the, the the work that you did designing the bottle for Anok which is lovely and uh, I think yeah and that's just at anoc.com you yeah. can see the whole project does that exemplify scotland to you i mean uh, in my mind the, the pristine uh, light quality uh, the kind of airiness uh, the seriousness but at the same time the enjoyment in in the land and the product uh, was all there yeah i mean well they they um they did a really good job in the video of how they, they obviously had a lot of fun jumping between scott um Anoch, this Knock, which is this tiny little town in Aberdeenshire, in the way north of Scotland, with them, and of course with the East Village in New York. So they enjoyed that contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, they they um, Anoch is des- you know they always describe themselves as being like a modern tradition of single malt. You know, their their aim is to sort of um, have. Be, they're very traditional the way it's made you know i don't think they even use any computers in their distillery it's all just calculators held on to weird old wooden desks with bits of masking tape and P- pens on chalices. yeah and just like yeah you know it's a wonderful hands-on distillery i believe it can it can actually all be run by one person um it used to be that they had to have two people to run it 
and they came up with this amazing technological discovery that what they had to do was to cut a door into a wall and that now allows one person to run the whole distillery <laughs> which is lovely i think and that, that kind of sums it all up yeah um you know and they're very they're, they spend a lot of time sponsoring different arts and galleries and things in scotland so you know they're it makes you know they this is something that made sense to them to get an artist involved and do some limited edition bottles so you toured the distillery mm-hmm. um you saw all its components it's uh the behind the scenes inner workings um and i love all the illustrations you did of pipes of tubes of mm-hmm. you know the infrastructure um what else kind of stood out at anok to you prior to the final label being printed yeah um the weather <laughs> the weather and the stillness like it you know i spent i spent a lot of time in the warehouse where where actually all the work is officially done by that stage i mean the whiskey is just sitting in barrels aging and it's just this amazing dark almost like religious well spiritual space shall we say um, and it's just like completely dark and there are all of these casks of varying ages covered in dust and a bit of mold and cobwebs and stuff all just stretching off into the distance and there's this this nice silence, you know, spiders spinning their webs. There's the sound of the rain dripping. And it's just this, there's some some sort of sense of magic, you know, like, because this is, you've seen them all bustling around and all the different processes that go on in making the whiskey. And then it's just this calm thing. It just sits there for years. And I remember as a kid, I would be really freaked out by the fact, you know, when the first time I ever saw a whiskey that was something like probably only 10 years old, but, you know, as a little kid, 10 years is just like forever it's a lifetime and i would just yeah. i would just be like really so the whiskey sits there for 10 years you know and of course some whiskeys sit there a lot longer than that but that just freaked me out and so being in that room with all of these aging barrels was just amazing yeah know? so you arrived at a final um you know label for anna yeah i mean i actually i sent them a lot of different ideas and and the final choice was was what you know something they went for which is um i'd, I'd drawn little symbols for all of the ingredients of the whiskey you know the all the things that you can see the things that are actually really in there you know the the malted barley the water the heat that you use the yeast which is used in the process and of course time and then i realized that i needed to add one other thing which was magic yeah. so that's where there's this like extra mystical thing the, the that's what makes anok anok yeah the sixth <laughs> element yes yeah no absolutely. gorgonzola in this one yes no gorgonzola <laughs> just patience <laughs> so uh you're obviously a scotch drinker now having your face plastered over how many cases how many bottles yeah it's like a little cartoon version of me they, they actually um when i was at the distillery they had an empty cask and they asked me to to paint my face on it which i did on camera and then that that little quick cartoony version of me became something they included on all of the packaging which is fun yeah but it's very much a cartoon me yeah you can tell it's me i guess (laughs) (laughs) i can tell it's you um the manhattan cocktail classic is coming up in mid-may yeah the 13th of may sunday the 13th so the stateside premiere of anok this is as it's actually um they're having an event called a, a taste of scotland um on i guess it's in the afternoon on the sunday the 13th at highlands um gastropub in the west village and uh as part there's a lot of things that are involved in that a lot of other i think there's even some other single malts that are going to be there but um part of that is the anok are launching the um, american version of the limited edition bottle that i did pretty awesome which is um should be fun yeah mashed potatoes and french fries yeah um there's food there's a lot of drink and it should be a very nice afternoon <laughs> excellent um peter thank you again i'm gonna start thank sending you. you potatoes in the mail to uh 
re-engage you into painting on that would be Sundays. i've never been asked to paint someone else's potato that could be <laughs> i've done people's dogs and babies but yeah no potatoes and that is that the fun. oddest perviest thing i've ever said on air so thank you for that again excellent and i nice the cookie um <laughs> and how do you say it slancha um that'll do yeah yeah <laughs> how do you say cheers in scottish you you can say there's a really long version which i don't like which is slangiva but yep. there's also i think there's um slanty slanty yeah which uh, i you know if scottish people out there are probably cringing because yeah you know i've become so american that i probably can't even say that properly anymore <laughs> well slanty to you cheers 100th episode <laughs> of the food scene heritage radio network.com hope to have you back here next tuesday at three michael harlan terkel bidding adieu Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.